Good morning. Palm Sunday, wonderful opportunity, preparing our hearts, preparing our souls and minds for the opportunities that come our way this week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter Sunday. And today, what I want to do with you is to look at a passage of Scripture that in many ways is the seedbed for Palm Sunday. When you and I begin to ponder the significance of that promise that was delivered in 5th century B.C. by Zechariah, that this one we know as Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey, we want to ask ourselves, well, what was he drawing from? What were the, was the seedbed by which he was able to see this idea sprout forth? And for that, what I'd like you to do is to turn in your Bibles with me to the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis. Now remember, as we are looking at this, we're going to be looking at messianic prophecy. Promises pertaining to Jesus Christ. And when you're looking at messianic prophecies, what you and I need to bear in mind is this. This is not merely a book. This is a library of 66 books written over the course of roughly 1,500 plus years, written by more than 40 authors, written in different places, written at different times, written on three different continents, written uh, in three different languages. Yet over the course of this, there is a continuity, there is a consistency, all of which points from Genesis through Revelation to Jesus Christ. So what I want to do now is to take one book out of your library and allow it to be the seedbed by which we see why all the other books are saying the same thing and why everything seems to be pointing in the direction of Jesus Christ. So that first book in your library now, you found your way to Genesis, and you're in the 49th chapter, and lo and behold, here in the midst of this 49th chapter, there's a man by the name of Jacob who is giving a blessing to his sons. The blessing is a very significant issue for Jacob because he had to wrestle with a blessing with his twin brother Esau. You know about that story likewise in the book of Genesis. But now here's the next generation. There are about 70 plus relatives now that are found their way into Egypt. And Jacob, in his latter years, is giving the blessing. And lo and behold, he doesn't choose the first. He doesn't choose the second. He doesn't choose the third in chronological order of birth regarding his children. By God's sovereign choice, he puts his hands on the fourth son, whose name is Judah. And now you find these words beginning in verse 8. Judah. Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. 
You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes, to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch. You see Palm Sunday etched into that? He'll wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. We have got one unique prophecy on our hands, and we're going to do our best now to open it up and see how it relates to all humankind for all time. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. On this Palm Sunday, then, Father, as we pause in our series in the Kings and the Chronicles to Think about the significance of our Lord entering into Jerusalem. I want to thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ who came to die for our sins. I want to thank you, Father, for the privilege and the opportunities of this week. Well, John noted it is a time, spring break, where there's coming and going, spring travel. There's a constancy, there's a consistency that's found when we look carefully into who you are and what you've done through Christ. We're asking that you speak to hearts through the course of this week and let our devotional life as we study your word come alive as we see how these 66 books speak in unison of Jesus Christ. Father, we want your word now to speak to us in profound and clear ways. So warm our hearts and engage our minds. So again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a journal known as Moment in which the editors decided that they were going to interview a wide range of Jewish artists, poets, scientists, lawmakers, physicians, professors, and the likes, asking a basic question, what does the concept of the Messiah mean today? Let me give you three different responses. One from Amos Oz, a novelist in Israel whose works I have read. Quote, he may be around the corner, but that's where he should always be. In the Jewish tradition, sitting idly waiting for the Messiah is a sin. This from Rabbi Schweitzer. 
Years ago, a popular evangelical bumper sticker in the U.S. read, I found it. The Jewish version would read, I'm still looking for it. Interesting. Harris Lunovitz, who's a literature professor, who at different times in their life hasn't had a belief that someone, a Messiah, can help them and help the world. And the Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, quote, does God really care about me? Unquote. What I want to do with you is look very carefully at these verses and explore the degree to which God in this seed plot of prophecy is making a statement to you of how much he cares by giving you evidences and allowing you to draw observations as to the way in which God has gone about fulfilling the prophecies throughout all time pertaining to Jesus Christ. With an eye on Palm Sunday, when Jesus Christ entered on that donkey, on a colt the full of a donkey, into Jerusalem, let's let these verses now flesh out for us what that writer was drawing upon as he was thinking about the promise of Messiah who was to come. Four observations that I think might strengthen our faith in Messiah we know as Jesus Christ. In the promise of Christ, I want you to notice, first of all, with me, the praise of his tribe. Look at verse 8. Judah, one of the twelve members of the tribes, sons of Jacob. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. When Judah was named, he was named, let him be praised. The literal translation of the word, the name Judah. So now, here are all the tribes of Israel turning their attention to Judah. Judah. In other words, as Jacob says this, <coughs> Son, let him be praised. Your brothers will praise you. Now notice that there is this internal respect for that tribe known as the tribe of Judah. They look outwardly and realize your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. As the Israelites throughout the years would go to this passage of Scripture, they would ponder the leadership that came from the tribe of Judah. For example, in Judges chapter 1, if you and I were reading, we would find these words that after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. When the 
tribes were moving throughout the wilderness, which was the leading tribe. Judah. When the promise was delivered with regard to a certain one from whom Christ would come, and that his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom, David. From what tribe was David? Judah. When there was this promise made with regard to a particular city from which Messiah would come, known as that town of Bethlehem, from what tribe would we find that town of Bethlehem? Judah. If you are taking your children through the scriptures and they're wondering how this passage relates to Jesus, you get to the point where you are, you're working your way through that long genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and they look at you with glazed eyes and say, Dad, Mom, why all these names? As you read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, ultimately leading to Jesus. Look at this passage of scripture that appears on the scene from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. Hebrews were Jewish people, believers, and notice what God says to them, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. When Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to register Jesus, so that it would be officially designated that he had come to that particular area, they are establishing once again the credibility of a promise delivered by God in Genesis, already being evidenced as true when the gospel writings are there, why is it so important to be able to establish your connection to your tribe, to your people, when you live in that setting? Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, that we've referred to in the prior week, writes, the first time I returned to speak in India after an 11-year absence, my wife, who's from Canada, Witness firsthand the esteem conferred by one's family. At a reception that was held in our honor in Bombay, at which I was to speak, her astonishment lay in the way I was introduced. It was a long and formal introduction, <coughs> filled with superlatives. Yet in its entirety, absolutely nothing was said about me. Instead, it was a lavish description of my father and the line through my father that led to me. It was one of those moments when you wanted to look around, identify this highly decorated individual or individuals who went before me, and then the last line was tagged on, and this is his son who is now here to speak to us. And that was the only line that referred to me. And what struck me was that in North America, it's all about what I have or what I have done. And the credentials are about the individual. But in India, the country of my father's birth, it's my lineage, 
It's my tribe. It's my father's credentials, my mother's birth, my roots that are important to the audience. I notice this significant experience whenever I make my way through the West, where it does not take long for a stranger to ask, where do you work? What's your business? But in the East, the question comes with equal deliberateness. Which was your home city from where you lived? What part of town did you live in? What did your father do? What did your grandfather do? Not, what do I do? Notice then the emphasis placed upon your lineage. Now, what have we done so far? We are beginning to lay the groundwork for understanding the credentials of Christ himself, of how important it was for David to be of the tribe of Judah, how important it was for Bethlehem to be within the tribe of Judah, how important it was for Jesus to be born within the city of Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, how important it was for the genealogy to list this lineage how important it is for Hebrews to clarify this again for us, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. <coughs> and now, when somebody comes along and asks you a significant question, does God care about me? We need to go to great lengths to be able to give evidence to the degree to which God went to great lengths to share with you and to share with me how much he cares. That he worked out this plan. And what you and I are looking at right now is the seedbed of that plan found in this Genesis 49 account. Isn't it astounding that in Genesis chapter 3, God right away shares the gospel to Eve. There will be this offspring who will crush the head of that serpent. All we know is it's going to be an offspring. It's going to be a lineage, someone from her. But we need a little more clarity, don't we? We need a little more information. But then here's Noah. Noah is able to say it's of Shem. In other words, a Semite. Not Ham, not Japheth. Sem in Noah in Genesis chapter 9. So now we know that this will be a, a Semite. But we need still more clarity. So you get to Genesis chapter 12. Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. Isaac, not Ishmael, will be the channel for Messiah. Next generation. Jacob, not Esau, will be the channel leading to Messiah. Next generation, Judah, not the other brothers, will be the channel through whom comes Messiah. And there is a narrowing of the line, there is a narrowing of the channel, so that you are, and I are given evidence of how much God wants to say to you and me, I care. Look at the great lengths I'm going to give evidence of who he is and how important it is that you put your faith 
and your trust in the one who's of that tribe. But you say, can you give me something more? Look at this next verse. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. <coughs> like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? In the promise of Christ, note second of all, if you will with me, the symbol of his strength. And what is that symbol? It's the lion. Now notice the descriptions of the lion that come out in verse 9. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he begins, you are a lion's cub, O Judah. In other words, this promise through Judah, its beginning is small. Right now it's just you, Judah. But out of you is going to come this significant tribe, and out of this significant tribe will come this significant Messiah. But right now, right now, you're a lion's cub, O Judah. But then he looks ahead prophetically. You return from the prey, my son. And Judah's looking around wondering, oh, who am I up against? But then you and I move forward through those who come from the line of Judah. And there is David of that line, and you ponder his, his ability to slay that Philistine known as Goliath, and how he's able to conquer those nations opposed to the Israelites. And you're saying to yourself, my, Judah is a lion. And he is able to conquer his enemies. Like a lion, he crouches, lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? And lo and behold, as you allow your mind to make its way from Genesis all the way to Revelation, check out what appears on the screen from Revelation itself, where you and I are told, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed, conquered death. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Where does he get this from? Genesis 49. Remember, you've got a library in your hands as you follow this pastor's teachings. 66 books. Notice the consistency. Notice the flow. Notice the development. Forty-plus authors. Three different continents. Three different languages. And yet what we find here from Genesis through Revelation is the consistency. See, he said, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Hear him roar. Now, you parents, you probably have or will pull out C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of the Narnia. Listen to these statements about him or from him. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. 
We shall not meet you there, it seems. And how can we live never meeting you? Ah, but you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. The lion representing Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan, but I have another name, and you must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you know, may know me better there. <coughs> Mr. Beaver's got to be able to answer a question. Safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He'll be coming and going, he had said. And one day you'll see him, and another day you won't. He doesn't like being tied down, you know. And of course he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in. Only you must not press him. He's wild, you know. Not like a tame lion. Jesus is not tame, you know. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. I'm ready for him to bare his teeth right now. And when he shakes his mane, we'll have spring again. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned, and they saw the lion himself so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy. Compared with him. Your lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, and you think of David. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? But three days later, he was roused. That son of David. How much does he care? Cares enough to clarify from which tribe. Cares enough to show you from which person of that tribe. It's the root of David, you know. Cares enough to tell you which town of that tribe. It's Bethlehem, you know. Cares enough to give you a genealogy. Cares enough to get Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem to register so that the world might know that this is truly on record. He was there. God's on record. He cares, you know. No matter what you've done in life, he cares, you know. See, in the promise, in the promise of Christ, I want you to note the praise of his tribe, the preeminence of this tribe. Notice with me the symbol of his strength. Its beginning is small, but its success is certain. Three days later, that one from the tribe conquers death and is raised. There's a third observation you're making here. Why is it that Disney would call the lion the Lion King? 
Where do they get this from? I wonder. But then in verse 10, this stands out to you. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. (coughs) Until he comes. To whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. Break it down with me. Notice first of all that the scepter here will not depart from Judah. What's the scepter? The scepter in a king's hand symbolized his authority, his dominion, his power. He would hold it in his hand. And people would have to recognize that he and he alone had the right to hold it in his hand. And now what God is doing is saying, look very carefully at this one from this tribe who has this strength, who has this scepter. Notice the description of his rule. And why is it that there's this particular one who has king of the Jews written in three different languages? above his head on that cross. And why is it that God would then say to David, who is of that tribe of Judah, that this is an everlasting kingdom, unless three days later, that ultimate one from David and from that tribe of Judah should rise from the dead? He's got the scepter, you know. But not only are you and I told that the scepter will not depart from Judah, notice the next description nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. What does that mean? The ruler's staff carries with it the idea of the shepherd's staff. A staff. What Moses would carry in the wilderness. Because in the Hebrew, the verbal root means literally to inscribe or to cut and refers to the concept of a lawgiver. Which means then that this ruler of the tribe of Judah, with all the strength of this world endowed in him, has dominion to be the lawgiver. Ironically, Paul would tell us that he was also the lawkeeper born under the law. He dies for our sins, you know. But now there's something more here. And I want you to notice the third description. And it is until Shiloh comes. That's literally in the Hebrew. Or in your New International Version. Until he comes to whom it belongs. (coughs) And when you look at that, you look very carefully at the personal pronoun. And you tie it back to the lawgiver and you tie it back to the scepter, and what you realize that Moses, the lawgiver, has in essence passed the shepherd's staff to the kingly one who holds the scepter, David. And they converge in this one, known as Jesus Christ, who keeps the law, dies for the penalty of that law, is raised on the third day, this everlasting kingdom, 
He's got the scepter. He's the lawgiver. He's Shiloh. He's Shiloh, you see. And now you are beginning to get a sense to the degree to which God says, no matter what you've done in life, I care. And this is how much I care. And this is the degree to which I'm saying how much I care. There was an emperor whose name is Charlemagne, and at the time of his death, as he was placed in his grave, a scepter was put in his fingers. But he remains in his grave. There is this thief on a cross who is looking at Jesus Christ and what he longs for is a sense of assurance. He longs for a sense of forgiveness. What he longs for from Jesus Christ is a word of comfort from this one who has such a kingly appearance about him. The one who has the king of the Jews inscribed, you see, over his head. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He's told. It's an eternal kingdom. But there is one more description here. And the obedience of the nations is his. And now as Jacob speaks, he's speaking, speaking to Jacob, but he's speaking through Jacob globally. And what appears on the screen, look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you go back to that phrase in your Bible, and it reads, and the obedience of the nations is his. And you're saying, you're talking end times from the book of Genesis. You're talking about Jesus and how much God cares from the book of Genesis. You're saying, but yeah, it's, it's a library. 66 books. 40 plus authors. Written in different places and different times and different ways, different moods, and three continents and three languages, but you note the consistency of it all, and God is saying, this is how much I care. And the nations, you and I are told in that last phrase, respond in obedience. There's a man named Leonard Wood who once visited the king of France, and a biographer writes, the king was so pleased with him, he was invited for dinner the next day. And Leonard went to the palace, and the king, meeting him in one of the halls, said, Why, Sir Leonard, I did not expect to see you. How is it that you're here? Didn't your majesty invite me to dine with you, said the astonished guest? Yes, replied the king, but you didn't answer my invitation. To which was one of the greatest responses in all of history. His reply, a king's invitation is never to be answered, but to be obeyed. 
And you look at the last phrase, and it says, and the obedience of the nations is his. And you're looking at that one of the tribe of Judah. But you're saying, well, Gary, how does all of this now relate to Palm Sunday? Connect the dots for me a little more. Show me how it relates. Well, look at the next verse. He will tether his donkey to a vine. His coat to the choicest branch. Stop right there. In one of the other books in your library, the book of Zechariah, 5th century B.C., look what appears on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See? Your king. See where we got that from? Your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. And how is that worked out in the Gospels? True to form. And God is saying, this is how much I care, you know. I'm keeping my promise from beginning to the end. Notice that he comes in on that Palm Sunday on a donkey, not on a white horse. Why? In that time in the Roman Empire in which Jesus walked this earth, when an emperor rode on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. When an emperor, on the other hand, came on a white horse, it was the symbol of war. In his first advent, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a what? Donkey. But in the book of Revelation, this one who is king of kings is described as riding on what? A horse. Do you see how all this fits together? And how the seedbed of promise that you are reading in Genesis 49 has a natural flow throughout the course of history leading to that final day when Christ returns? Here's your, here's your fourth observation. That in the promise of Christ, note with me the future of his reign. Once you've got the first coming down, at the beginning of verse 11, notice how it connects with the second coming. He'll wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. That's the sign of blood. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And now you've got a full description of how, from Genesis through Revelation, these verses tie together for you what God intended of saying, first time in Jerusalem, donkey. Second time around, white horse. But don't overlook how much I care. I've spelled it out. Check out the tribe of Judah. Check out the line of David. Check out that town of Bethlehem. Ponder the genealogy of Matthew or Luke in chapter 3. Look very carefully as to why Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem to register. See what is said in Hebrews 7.14. Tie it together furthermore with what we've covered in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
And then what do you say? Just what do you say then to an Amos Oz, a Jewish novelist? He may be around the corner, but that's where he should always be in the Jewish tradition. Sitting idly waiting for the Messiah's sin. Or Rabbi Peter Schweitzer, what years ago a popular evangelical bumper sticker read, I found it. The Jewish version would read, I'm still looking for it. Check out the tribe. Check out the root of David. Check out Bethlehem. Check out Calvary. Check out that empty tomb. To answer Harris Lenovitz, who says, who at different times in their lives hasn't had a belief that someone, a Messiah, can help them and help the world, and the Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, quote, does God care about me? He cares so much about you. This one we've described went to the cross to die for your sins, and three days later was raised from the dead. That's how much he cares. Can you hear the lion roar? Let's stand together. We're awed by your word. We're awed by the one that the word describes. And we're awed by this promised strategy that was delivered to Eve and to Noah, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, to David, on toward Christ. And here now we see the significance of a passage as it relates to life today and why we're worshiping you this morning. Help us now to take these observations. Take them to heart. Accept what you've said. And realize the King is coming. And for this we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.